0: hi i'm jeremy lent i'm an author and integrator and i'm author of the patterning instinct and an upcoming book called the web of meaning integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe and today on the show we're going to be talking about some of the ways in which our modern civilization is destroying the well-being of humans and the whole natural world and how we can get off this hedonic treadmill that is driving us on. And we're going to look at some of the deeper questions of consciousness, meaning, and the things that really connect us with what is truly meaningful in life.
1: Welcome back to another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. This is part two of my interview with... The brilliant Jeremy Lent, who is the author of The Petting Instinct, which came about in 2017. It's a look at cultural history of humanity and the different ways that our societies uh, construct meaning about the universe. His upcoming book is The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. In part one, we talked about uh, Hedonia and... Um, how we uh, construct meaning at a very personal level and how we actually abandon it. We talked about the, the, the beautiful grief, the beautiful sadness, and the importance of embracing the most profound moments in our lives, even if they don't feel so delicious at the time, that they are actually the things that will really sustain us moving forward. Yeah. As we move into this part, let's let's dive a little bit deeper. Jeremy, tell us what were you like as a kid. You 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 grew up in London. Is that I grew up in London?
0: Yeah, I I think I was um, fairly self contained um, Mm -hmm. as a kid and um, grew up feeling I had I was fortunate to really feel loved and secure, but I also felt different uh, from the world around me uh, mm. sort of thing. So that even I, I guess growing up uh, f- um, into my teens, I began to feel an increased sense of sort of alienation uh, mm. from people. And um, just a sense that our society looked and um, just seemed different from me than I felt would was kind of real. I, I remember I, I chose j- just the other day I was um, coming across uh, somebody who was a formative writer for me in, the, in my early teens. His name is R. D. Lang, um, a uh, psychotherapist mm-hmm. who's kind of forgotten nowadays. But he was quite a um, uh, and he, he was he was quite a name back in the '70s, and he wrote this little book called Knots. Um, and I r- realized I remembered decades later, after having read it, th- these lines were so meaningful to me. That started, this book, at as, as least I, as I remember, it started out saying, they are playing a game. They are playing at not playing a game. <laughs> and mm. I remember when I read those, as a young teenager, it was like, yes, that's exactly what it feels like to me, is what's going on. Like, as if I was, didn't quite figure out, couldn't quite figure out how to fit into this culture. Um, which is actually why pretty much I left England when I was 21 years old. As soon as I sort of reached some sort of age where I felt like... What year was that? Uh, that was 1981.
1: 1981. Uh, where, um, I left in 79 at 21.
0: Oh, right. So we're really <laughs> tracking each other there. yeah.
1: I mean, exactly that. I mean, you know, it's really interesting, Jeremy, because my guests on this show... Uh, and my my closest friends, we're, uh, we all describe ourselves as aliens or freaks. And right. we never fit where we belong. And I don't think that's a particularly unusual feeling. I think everybody has those moments of feeling like, was I adopted? You know. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there's a difference in the way that it didn't go away for us. We were like, no, I, there's something off about this game and I'm not in it. And particularly for me growing up in Northern England was like, no, I, I, I really like the aspirations of my life are not be able to be able to drink nine pints of Buddington's Bitter on a Saturday <laughs> night. That is not my aspiration of bragging rights. Uh, but it, you know, and, and I and didn't feel like it was wrong. I felt like it was wrong for me. When you felt that like kind of alien, were you, alienation rather, were you, are you an uh, an only child? Were you, did you have siblings? Oh, I had siblings, an older
0: brother and sister. Oh. Uh, so I was the third so the
1: did they seem to be part of the the, the clan, and you were outside of it, or, or did they also seem like they were separated?
0: Yeah, it was interesting. Um, they seemed separated, but in different kind of ways. Um, mm. My sister, actually, interestingly enough, um, she left England too, and... By sheer coincidence, it wasn't kind of planned that way. She lives now at an hour away from where I live. I live in Berkeley, California. She's in Palo Alto. So somehow we we sort of we found our own paths and ended up converging. <laughs> uh, it's quite interesting. And my brother is still um, in England. And of, of the three of us, he was probably the one who felt like he fits the most in right. that uh, kind of culture. Um, but it was more for me. Um, the kind of uh, the the broader English culture around that I felt alienated from. Just yes. this sense of I and mean, partly growing up Jewish in England is yep. different actually than growing up Jewish in the United States, where yes. um, your view, you're sort of as a Jew in the United States, you're just like you're like one ethnic group among other ethnic groups, and yes, you've got your, you've got your identity, you've got and you might um, experience anti-Semitism at some point, but then other people experience anti whatever ethnic group they're part of. Sure. In England, it was very different because you have more of a monolithic ethnic group. And as a little kid, I grew up sort of being told by my parents kind of keep a low profile, fit in, um, mm-hmm. because don't, don't make a fuss about being Jewish because people, and it, this is partly, this is the the generation after World War II. Absolutely. Um, my parents as they were uh, growing up in their teens and and their twenties, Got to discover how fortunate they were they were in England rather than Europe because most likely they would have wouldn't they would have not made it so through your, your parents were right English now. born so they were born in England but their parents had so left, your Baba and uh, Zeta
1: were from yeah exactly were, were they from they Russian? One,
0: one from Russia one from Poland the yeah. sort of classic like most uh, of us sort right? of, yeah G- Jewish um uh sort of history of the last century or so but um in <clears throat> but so I I, and that was part of what I wanted to rebel against this sense of trying to sort of keep a low profile and fit in. um, And don't make a big wave about who you are or what you are and and I really I used to say to myself look it's just a by a random. uh, sort of stroke of lack of history, I happen to be born in this country in this place in this time, why should I then just say that this life. Has to be limited or constrained by that. I just wanted to leave and discover the world, and you know, really like forge my own identity, totally apart from whatever I had been given by the sort of the roll of the dice.
1: Yeah, it's it it, it that conversation about feeling alienation for me is you know again that's a whole show on its own, not just about you and I, but you know, I think that in many ways that is what I call the double-edged sword in that it is the curse and it is the blessing. It's horrendous to feel it at the time, but looking back, it is delicious because it is the thing that forged at least the beginnings of my transformation in that I knew I was never going to fit in. I didn't look like them. I didn't dress like them. I didn't think like them. Um, And I pretended for a brief period of time that I was them, but I never felt like, I mean, when I say pretended for like a year, right. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. a year in high school and then realized, Oh God, I'm so not. Um, but I think that, I think that, I think that there are some of us like you and I who, who get that and accept that. But I think there are far ma- many more who feel that way, but then repress and suppress yes. that yeah. in order to fit in. Cause you know, you were talking about, uh, meaning and culture but the 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 tribal part of us needs to fit in and and one of my whole things around dragon leaders is dragon leaders don't fit in we belong there's a difference if i fit in i have to fit something into the closet i gotta shove it down and make it small and 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 repress it to fit in whereas to belong i want to be able to spread my wings Mm. and and breathe my fire And, and i belong in this place there's room for the full expression of jeremy there's the full mm-hmm. expression of dove or whoever it might be mm-hmm. and and that i don't know that there's a gift that we can bring while being squashed into fit in so it's right. it's it's a really fascinating piece around cultural meaning what what's the one thing most people you know from all of your work all of your research what's mm-hmm. the one thing that most people just don't understand about meaning that you wish they did really understand? Well, I think <clears throat> in our society that uh,
0: we have right now, our mainstream society, th- probably the biggest um, misconception that we just bring, that we just absorb from childhood and live our lives uh, like a fish swimming in water, not even aware that it's there sort of thing, um, is this notion of ourselves as individuals, you know. There's mm-hmm. so much that is spoken about in in the North America, in particular, this kind of libertarian sense of like, and and even not not just in sort of mainstream culture, but even so-called alternative cultures, mm-hmm. um, uh, which which sort of talks about how we need to fulfill ourselves, and you know, the whole notion of self-actualization. Even that is based on this kind of concept of. Um, that I am an individual. I exist in my own being, in my own body. And Mm -hmm. the purpose of my life then is to fulfill this individual existence to the fullest amount. And it stays Mm -hmm. very much within this boundary of the self. And then um, that leads to these political notions of individual liberty. And so if I'm an individual and trying to fulfill myself, then clearly the whole reason for society or the the whole underlying values behind politics should be to allow individual liberty, allow me to be myself to the fullest extent. And so let these restrictions go so I can truly uh, pursue whatever I want in my own way. But all of that is based on this notion of my own being being is and this bounded self mm-hmm. and i think that is a profound misconception that actually comes deep in western uh culture and thought all the way back to the ancient greeks and and certainly through uh christianity to and to the sort of modern way of thinking and it's really wrong in terms of if we look at everything from evolutionary biology to um like what we are as human beings. And we are actually, our very identity um, is much more accurately understood as being part of this interconnected web of connections with, um, with the different parts of ourselves, with community, with all of humanity, with the natural world. And then that leads to a whole different way of making sense of things. If you start to lose some of that fixed boundary of the self, you start to kind of expand. I, I, I was just thinking about when you're using the word belong, um, to think about imagining that that word actually was be long in the sense of expand, yeah. become expand long, it, yeah. as part of our identity. Um, and I think that is a radical notion for uh, most people in our world, because it's not even allowable as a way of thinking. But if you look at indigenous culture and if you look at the great traditions of Buddhism and Taoism um, or others, you discover that that is the fundamental insight that everything comes from the interdependence of all things, um, what uh, a Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, and that none of us exist as these separated islands. And, and once you move in that place, all kinds of implications arise, which can lead you to really question some of the deepest preconceptions.
1: So, looking at that, putting myself on the other side of the of the speaker, listening to this, it sa- it could sound like what you're saying is we should ad- abandon this idea of self actualization. Um, and that that person might hear that as, I need to become part of the hive mind, and I know that that's not what you're saying. So help help the other person yeah. sort of grasp that because we're not you're not talking about suddenly becoming the Borg, that's um, right, right, you're not becoming part of the hive mind. But you know you're you're talking about taking. The hedonistic sense of self-actualization outright. right? Mm-hmm.
0: What, yes, I think more. um, and I you make a, <clears throat> a really key point, and thank you for that, is when we look at the self versus the hive mind, um, it's a little bit like once you create the sense of the self, um, then you have this sort of duality of well, to not to lose yourself then is to just be uh, sort of become part of that hive mind or and and we can translate that politically into we have capitalism versus communism and the only option of looking out for myself is having to be give myself up to this horrendous state that sort of takes over everything. Where, where, so that's,
1: where, where, the, where the high priestess is Anne Rand.
0: <laughs> right exactly absolutely <laughs> um, and what I'm talking about is not actually Um, giving up on self-actualization at all, but on recognizing that we can transform the very definition and understanding of the self to be uh, what I call um, like a fractal self. Um, Really, it's a self that is partly, um, of course, my being. If I have a feeling, it's a feeling that I experience subjectively. Um, If somebody hits me, I feel it. You know, there's definitely self um, around that. We're not denying that in any which way. But then we're recognizing that all the the ways in which I develop who I am is through interactions with others. And all the ways in which a community can be actually healthy and happy is by being part of a healthy and happy um, greater community and greater context and fractally. And just uh, for anybody who's not sure about that word fractal, it basically refers to patterns that repeat themselves at different levels of scale. Um, And so a fractal, in fact, what uh, um, scientists have discovered that the whole natural world, all of life is designed fractally. Um, And so you have a pattern that is in a cell, which repeats itself in an organism, which repeats itself in a A whole um, species which repeats itself in an ecosystem. And each of these are patterns that repeat themselves, but not exactly the same. They're never Mm. exactly the same, but the principles of the patterns remain similar at these different levels of scale. So similarly, um, I can be a self as a self, but part of myself is who I am in community, who I am in terms of my identity, who I am in terms of my nation or my ideology that I believe in, who I am in terms of all of life that I'm connected with. And the in my view, that full fulfillment of the self is when your actual being of consciousness, it continually flows through mm-hmm. those layers. It can be moment to moment, um, hour to hour. And um, so that all of those places are part of my identity. And so it's a very it's just really a different way of relating and in fact um there's this great um uh, indigenous thinker her name is Ladonna harris um who she's a a comanche activist and thinking she's studied this concept what she calls indigeneity which is like looking at shared values around different indigenous groups all around the world um and they're all these these values are all based on relationships, things like yeah. um, relationship with the community, reciprocity, and all these things. And then, and then people say to her, but what happens to the self um, if everything's based on the relationship? And her point is, actually, the self is never Lost The self gets to be actualized more when you're um, working out how you can contribute the most to your community. When you're working out what you've been given and how you can reciprocate. When you're working about how you can um, revere nature around you, that is not reducing your sense of self, that's expanding your sense of self. So that's the whole point. It's not like self versus hive mind. It's about transforming and fulfilling yourself in a far richer and broader way than our society usually allows.
1: I, one of my teachers was Pata who was the Dean of the Vedanta University in Bombay. And um, I remember I was in a shitty relationship, um, but I was a coward, (laughs) which means I wasn't gonna leave it. Um, I was gonna keep playing the nice guy and nice guys are assholes and I was an asshole because it's manipulative. And I remember sitting with Pata and saying that I was feeling this angst about the relationship or whatever. And um, he said to me, um, gave me full permission. He said, uh, because most people are not looking for advice, they're looking for permission. And he said to me, um, he said, you do know the path narrows until it can only hold one. And I was like, oh, okay, good. And that was my that was my out, right? So I went back and said, Well, you know, I'm on my spiritual path, and the path, as Pathasarijay said, the path narrows until it can only hold one. And so I need to let you go so I can continue on my journey. Cause I was very dedicated in, on my path to quote enlightenment. Um, and it wasn't until many years later that that I began to really understand what he was saying. In, in the, the journey to, quote, enlightenment, to uh, really understanding oneself, is that you have to pull away. You have to resist the hive mind. You have to resist the conditioning. You have to resist all the social complexity of meaning that's been given to you. And you have to go deep within, i.e., until it narrows until it only holds one. But then it's like the hero's journey is that now I have to bring that back into the world. So now, so I always describe it as looking like an hourglass in that I'm out here and I'm holding everything in the world. And then it narrows, narrows, narrows until I can only look at it from, okay, I've got to now face myself and then I got to bring that back to the world. And so that's the very interesting point about what you were saying there, Jeremy, that I loved, which is this, Understanding that your path to quote enlightenment or the self is actually about expanding out, so that you you go all the way in, so that you can bring something back, and in that expansion of that, you become more, not less, but you matter less. The the hedonistic, I uh, individuated uh, individual who needs to be important matters less mm-hmm. but what you're messaging in what it is that you want to bring the way you want to serve how you want to be in reciprocity with the universe is much more mm-hmm. and the compelling to do that is much more not because of the pat on the back and the uh, hip hip array, what a fabulous guy but more because i'm here on the planet to serve so i think it's a lovely way that you explained that thank you for Having people understand that this is not about this either or because when when right. said to me the path uh narrows until it can only hold one it was either or,
0: mm-hmm. and that's
1: where you know was my, where I was stuck right was either or. and then the understanding as as you put it is that you know from this uh, this lady uh, the the um the indigenous lady I don't Bouchard, know you know, it's a, about no, it's about you become more in that, not less. Right. And I love that. I love that you you bring it to that. Yeah. How do you, what's your sort of guidance around that in the context of, I, 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 I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. We as Westerners, and we're talking about Westerners because we're in the West. Mm-hmm. We as Westerners, are, you know, as I said, the high the high priestess and Rand, and you know, have been built built into this capitalistic. And by the way, I'm a capitalist. I live in a nice house and I like nice things. so It's not about that, but we we're, we're driven to this hedonistic version of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, that then you break away. Some people break away and go, okay, you know, I realize the the futility of that. And they, for me, become annoying. Uh, it's my opinion. It's not the truth. And I always say, you know, one of my great teachers who was, again, a Buddhist monk who said to me, I was trying to explain something to him. And he said, oh, you're a Western Buddhist. And I said, what do you mean? he goes, "You, what you think Buddhism is, is not what it is. Mm-hmm. Your thinking is in the way. So it's that, how do we get people to, to grasp that? Because you've done all this stuff on meaning and patterns. And mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how do you get people yeah. to come to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, there's a,
0: a practice <clears throat> that I think is very valuable that I, I actually call cultural mindfulness. And, um, yeah, maybe before I even talk about what cultural mindfulness is, uh, for people who are listening who aren't necessarily familiar with mindfulness itself just as a, as a process, mm-hmm. um, it's really, that is, well, that's part of what you can uh, achieve through Meditation above all, but there's other ways to do it, but meditation is really like the most sort of um, the, the clearest technology, mm-hmm. if you will, to attain that. And really what mindfulness is simply about is becoming by practice aware of some of the things that you were just talking about, Dov. Just um, recognizing that oftentimes as you learn to meditate, you realize that you make up stories <coughs> about yourself or about other things that happened or about other people all the time and part of the incredible uh, breakthroughs you can get through a mindfulness meditation practice is you realize those are just stories Mm -hmm. and uh, and then you realize that you make judgments about those stories and then you can say once you recognize that you say okay that's just a judgment again another story that I'm making up about the story and so as you recognize so many of these mind loops you get caught in are simply stories you make up it frees you to then let those go. You don't have to say they're wrong or they're bad, but you just recognize those are stories. They're not necessarily the truth. They're one way of looking at things. And then it opens up the possibility of looking at other ways to basically make meaning out of whatever is it small meanings big meanings whatever so that's the notion of mindfulness that is practiced through meditation that i find very helpful and Mm -hmm. millions of people do so then add to that this layer of what i call cultural mindfulness which is to then uh Take that same process of identifying stories, but then look at what are the stories that our culture tells us that we all take for granted that is even harder to recognize because if everyone else is buying into the same story, um, it gets very hard. So many things get written about or discussed on these implicit assumptions that actually may be wrong and that some of them in our Western culture, I would go further and say they are wrong. And sure. they're basically, they're telling us things that are simply not true, such as, <clears throat> um, let's say, the, the concept of the, the selfish gene, that, that nature is fundamentally based on genes, and that's how evolution works, is like the selfish gene um, learning how to be selfish at the expense of others in this highly competitive environment, and the humans <clears throat> are basically um, naturally um, selfish Greedy separate individuals who are trying to maximize for ourselves or that uh, society works best by harnessing that greed and and putting it all uh, together in one sort of capital. These are all basically um, Not just myths and not just harmful but plain wrong is a complete Mm -hmm. misconception about evolution a misconception about who we are as human beings and once you learn this process of cultural mindfulness um, another one I would just add is this notion of nature as a machine. Nature has no intrinsic value. It's just this machine to exploit. You start to realize that basic fundamental things that are taken for granted everywhere are based on these misconceptions, which allows us to be free to start to explore what are other ways to make sense of things that don't fit in that way.
1: Yeah, that's that's powerful because again we're back to where we started it which is the willingness to question reality Um, it's what i wanted to do in this show is to have people have a uh a trampoline of which to bounce into that place in their own mind that will question what has been quote unquote true Um, in a world where we live where um real news is fake news and fake news is real news where conspiracy theory is fact and facts are conspiracy and and our attention is for sale um and and everything that we hold as true and meaningful is manipulated it it it's an incumbent upon us to step into the into curiosity into questioning the meaning of a something um and to in, again it's my truth not the truth is the willingness to hold nothing as true and everything as true meaning there are fractals of truth and and fractals of lies in everything and the Uh, You know, I've always, you know, the analogy I gave for years was to say, if I draw a six inch circle on a board, um, and I say, okay, this is scientific knowledge, all scientific knowledge, up to the year 1900. Okay. And then I say, what is everything else that's outside of that circle? And people go, I don't know. And the answer is mystical. There's no scientific proven of it. Now I say to you, now draw the circle in the year 2000. Is it the same circle or is it bigger? And they go, well, it's obviously bigger. There's more scientific knowledge. Fantastic. So what happened to the mystical? The mystical got proven. So is the mystical mystical or do we just not have the technology to measure it yet? And the purpose of that exercise is not to say all the mystical stuff is true. Some of it is, some of it isn't. But it's to say, be willing to question what you hold as absolute, scientific, rigorous truth. You may just not have the the science for it or the the, uh, technology for it yet, because let's remember that the universe spun around the earth (laughs) before enlightenment, before the years of enlightenment, before Galileo Galilei and others. You know, that was the general thinking in the Western world. Although... In other world, in other cultures, they never saw it that way. People don't realize that that many thousands of years before Galileo Galilei, there was other cultures who went, "No, nah, no, nah, we're not the central universe." <laughs> so, mm-hmm. it, you know, I, I love that you're bringing this to people. I love that you're having them look at the the truths and the meanings and etc. And I really want to look more at the the patterns of things in our next part, because we're already at the end of part two. But I want to look at the patterns and the need for, as you said, this instinct to create patterns, um, which may or may not be real, but we're making them anyway um, and forming meaning around them. So I, I want to thank you, Jeremy, for being with us. And by the way, if you want to find out more about Jeremy, you can go to jeremylent.com. That's Jeremy G, uh, sorry, J E R. E-M-Y-L-E-N-T.com. Correct? That's, com- that's correct. Right, JeremyLent.com. There are more websites, and we'll certainly put those in the show notes as well. But go to JeremyLent.com. You're going to find out all about all the different things this guy's doing. He's doing a lot of things. We're going to talk more about those in the in the uh, upcoming parts of the show. As we come into the next part, we're going to look at this the patterns, and we're going to look at technology, And what technology has done to that and how we um, have been part of that world and how it's fed into capitalism and the form of capitalism that we know and what what we're doing with that as meaning so we'll be back and i hope you will stay curious my friends stay curious and come back to us for part three of this delicious interview with jeremy lent